0: Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 57 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today, we're going to be talking all about the debt ceiling crisis that almost happened, that big debacle. Things got a little bit tense leading into Memorial Day weekend, and thankfully, our politicians pulled through. They figured out what they're going to do, kind of, sort of, or at the very least, they kicked the can down the road. But we're going to go into detail today because probably what you guys saw on the nightly news, or even if you read a quick blurb in the newspaper, it didn't really dive into detail about why these things happen why they've been happening now for many, many decades, why some debt ceiling crises really have caused the government to temporarily shut down, and considering we only kicked the can down the road, what might happen in the future? So we're going to dive into some details there, explain what happened. But where we're going to start is actually more important, because where we're going to start is what you guys should be doing about this fact that we just had a debt ceiling crisis what if anything you should be doing should you be taking any action in your personal financial lives should you do anything to prepare for the eventuality of a future debt crisis all good questions so we're going to start with that we're going to start with the cool actionable advice the stuff that you guys can take away from today and then we'll dive into detail on exactly what this debt ceiling issue was and you're going to walk away a little bit smarter and with some takeaways to implement into your own life. All right, let's kick it off. Okay, so what should you do about this debt ceiling crisis? What lessons should you learn? And what what can you implement into your personal finance life? The short answer, and you'll have to follow me here, The short answer is nothing that you weren't already doing, assuming, though, that you have good financial habits. In other words, if you already had all your financial ducks in a row, then you're fine. You're totally fine. You don't need to change a thing. This debt ceiling crisis isn't really affecting you. It didn't affect you, at least not in the long run. Okay. However, if you don't have your financial ducks in a row, then there are some changes that you should make you probably should have been making these changes regardless of a debt ceiling crisis existing in the first place. And perhaps this debt ceiling issue is a reason for you to change sooner than later. So again, if you had your personal finances in order, there's nothing you need to change. If you didn't have them in order, well, you would have needed to change your personal finances regardless of a debt ceiling crisis, but the debt ceiling might be that straw that breaks the camel's back. So let's go to an example. Let's say you are a federal worker and you were essentially one congressional vote away from temporarily losing your paycheck because that's what would have happened here, right? The whole debt ceiling crisis, it has to do, and we'll dive into this in a second, but it has to do with the idea of, does the federal government allow itself to go further into debt? And if it doesn't allow itself to go further into debt, then they kind of stop all operations until they figure out if they're gonna go further into debt. And stopping all operations means, well, some people aren't going to get paid. So if you're one of those people that wasn't going to get paid, let's say that you don't really have much of an emergency fund, you were staring down the barrel, right? You were on the verge of being in trouble. You would have no paycheck coming in. You'd have no emergency fund to cover next month's expenses. What exactly were you going to do? So there's a very good reason there to build up your emergency fund. We've talked about it before here on the Best Interest podcast, written about it on the Best Interest blog. How much of an emergency fund do you need? It depends. Different people will tell you different things. My range of advice is three to 12 months of living expenses. And usually the shorter end of that range is for someone who doesn't mind a little bit of risk in their lives, but also someone who feels very secure in their job security. If, if there's not much risk of you getting fired, Or if you were to say lose your job, if you believe that you're quickly rehirable, well, then you can afford to have a smaller emergency fund. But with someone who either is a little less secure in their job or has a very, say, unique job that it might take them a long time to get rehired, they might want to be closer to that 12 month emergency fund. I'm working with people in my day job who, say, you're a high level executive, you were brought in to run this company, and That's really what you want to do with your life. You want to be in charge. And there's only so many positions like that out there, right? Limited number of positions. If for some unfortunate reason you were to lose your job, you might not want to just jump at the first opportunity that comes your way. You want to take your time. You want to see what opportunities are out there. You want to evaluate the pros and cons of everything. You're going to need time to do that. You're going to need time to travel for interviews, to to evaluate different positions, all that jazz. You get what I'm saying. That might not be something you can do in three months. You might need six or nine or 12 months, maybe even longer. And if you find yourself in that position, you're going to want an emergency fund that, that matches that need in your life. So yes, this debt ceiling crisis for some people might have highlighted their need for an emergency fund. Similarly, like we can think about the investing side of the world. The debt ceiling, it certainly shook up the bond world a little bit. And whenever anything gets shaken up in the bond world, it ripples its way into the stock market. We could dive into details there. Long story short, because the treasury is involved here, and the treasury, they're the ones who issue treasury bills and notes and bonds. And when you hold a treasury bill, note, or bond, you expect to get repaid. Makes sense, right? Well, if the treasury is no longer really paying back its debts because there's something going on with the debt ceiling, it's going to affect, at least in the short term, the value of treasury, in this case, treasury bills. Treasury bills are the shortest ones, okay? So the value of treasury bills, we saw in the treasury markets in late May and early June, we saw bill prices rippling, changing pretty quickly. Yeah, that infiltrated its way into the stock market a little bit. There was some volatility, definitely some uncertainty. Now, if that uncertainty over that two-week time span drove you up the wall, that might be a sign that your investment allocation isn't quite right. Or similarly, if that volatility over that two-week time span, if it materially damaged your wealth in some irreversible long-term way, that might be a sign that your portfolio wasn't constructed correctly. But again, that isn't unique to the debt ceiling crisis. My, My point is, whether there was a debt ceiling crisis or not, The fact that your portfolio suffered damage in such a short period of time, irreversible damage, or the fact that you were stressed out in such a short period of time over something that happened in your portfolio, that is a sign that your portfolio probably wasn't in the right spot in the first place. Because debt ceiling crises, they happen. Natural disasters happen. Political turmoil happens. Sometimes there are wars in foreign countries that happen, like this Ukraine-Russia war that we saw really rocked the investing world in early 2022. Of course, it's a terrible humanitarian thing, but these things happen. Life happens. The world has some chaos in it. It always has, and it always will. And if that chaos, sometimes it's short-term, sometimes it even stretches out to years, but if that chaos affects the market in some way and therefore affects your portfolio, creates some volatility, and ends up making your stomach upset, you lose sleep at night because of the chaos in the world and the volatility in your portfolio, that might be a sign that your portfolio is a little too volatile. It's a little too risk heavy and maybe you need to be in something else. Debt ceiling crises happen. This one might've been the one that showed you that your portfolio isn't quite in the right place. The thing that I want you guys to take away from today is that your portfolio wasn't in the right place regardless of the debt ceiling crisis happening. For most people, if your emergency fund was in place, if you had a balanced portfolio based on your personal timelines and goals, and based on your personal risk tolerance, then this debt ceiling crisis really had no effect on you at all. And there's nothing that you need to change. All right, let's dive into exactly what happened with the debt ceiling crisis, why it happened. We're going to talk a little bit about government and politics, a little bit of economics. It's not really so much personal finance, but if you care about the way that your little corner of the personal finance and investing world fits in with the bigger picture, this is going to be an awesome podcast for you. It's one thing that I do care about. I'm, I'm really interested to know how my little budget and my little 401k and my little Roth IRA, how do they fit into the greater economy? How do they fit into the way that governments work? Because these things in the world, they, they do affect you. It doesn't mean that you need to change what you're doing, as we just went over, but they do affect us. So let's, let's talk about it. Government is a bit like a business. At least That's the way that I think about it. Now that business, it aims to provide services and infrastructure that we all use. This could go down a pretty interesting political science rabbit hole that I'm vastly unqualified to talk about. But the idea is, are there some things in this world that we should all pitch in on because we all or most of us end up using? That, that's essentially the essence of government, or that's one of the ways that I think about it. And you have some people on the political spectrum who say, no, absolutely not. Everything should be independently owned and operated and run. And if you want to use that thing, you pay for it. And if you don't want to use it, you don't pay for it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that tends to be maybe a more libertarian or, or right-wing conservative view. This idea of a smaller government, a government that does less, putting more responsibility on individual people to build their own things, to maintain their own things, to run their own things, et cetera, et cetera. You know, private schools instead of public schools. But then on the other end of the spectrum, on say the, the left or the liberal end of the spectrum, are thoughts that, yeah, there are some things that everybody uses, and so everybody should pitch in, we should be taxed, we're going to get to that, and then we, we all pay for it, we all use it, and government, this, this quote-unquote independent body or this body that we vote in, maybe there are some appointed positions, they're the ones who run and maintain these shared resources. So lots and lots of things in our government. We have, you know, schools to educate us, roads to transport ourselves and our goods. Many of those things cost money and they combined for the roughly $6.5 trillion U.S. annual federal budget. That's what our budget was last year, $6.5 trillion with a T. And that's roughly $20,000 per U.S. citizen. Now, any business, because remember, the government is a bit like a business. Their business is providing these services and providing this infrastructure to us. Businesses need to make money somehow. They don't necessarily need to make profit, but they need to intake revenue. And governments, of course, they collect that revenue via taxation. That's payroll taxes, sales taxes, corporate taxes, the taxes that we all pay. You guys get it. Now, government though, it's kind of a unique business. Because, well, one, we can't really opt out of being the government's customers. Unless we choose to move to a different city, a different state, a different country, we can choose to exit the government that we're in. But as long as we're here, you're part of it. We can partake in government, though, through voting or through running for office. We can aim to change the laws for revenue collection and spending if we want to. That really is probably the biggest debate on a recurring basis in government. How many taxes, how much tax should we collect? And then what should we spend it on? That's one of the biggest roles of any elected official. How much money is the government going to spend? What are we spending it on? And how will that affect John Q. Public's tax bill? So that brings us to today's topic: the debt ceiling. Now the topic has been all over the news. Let's try to explain the whole debt ceiling drama in simple terms. Now first, I'm going to address four somewhat related questions: What is the debt ceiling? Why does the debt ceiling exist? Why are we in debt in the first place? and how does this debt continue to grow? So, the U.S. government is in debt, lots of debt. We'll talk a little bit later about why that's not ideal, but also we'll talk about why it's not as bad as if you were in debt in your household. Right now, the U.S. is approaching $32 trillion, that's trillion with a T, $32 trillion of debt, and it's only going to go up, at least for the near term, it's only going to go up. We're in debt because, well, At least for each of the last 22 years, the federal government has spent more money on the schools, on its roads, and on lots and lots of other things. It's spent more money than it has collected in taxes. We operated, in other words, in an annual deficit. The reason why I mentioned 22 years earlier is because there were some times in the late 2000s, or sorry, the late 90s, early 2000s, when the US government operated at an annual surplus. It was still in debt, but the debt was shrinking. Now, for the last 22 years, not only have we been in debt, but the debt has been growing year over year over year. We've been operating at an annual deficit. And to make up the difference between the tax that we're collecting and the money that we're spending, the government has borrowed that money. We've gone into debt. The debt has now grown $32 trillion. Well, there comes a question then. Can the government go further and further and further into debt? And the answer there is not exactly. Congress determines, our Congress determines, they vote for how far into debt we're allowed to go. That limit is called ding, 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 the debt ceiling. Okay, it was first enacted in 1941, and the first debt ceiling was set at $65 billion with a B, $65 billion. But as our country grew and as our country borrowed more, Congress has voted time after time to raise the debt ceiling. In fact, there have been more than 90 unique congressional votes to raise the debt ceiling. But that vote isn't always easy. Some politicians, they look at the situation and they think, well, aren't we in enough debt already? Why do we continue to operate at an annual deficit? Why are we spending more than we're collecting in taxes? If we let this thing go on forever, surely we'll get into trouble at some point. You can't just go into debt forever. And then they conclude and they say, well, I refuse to continue to enable this kind of reckless financial behavior. And trust me, I understand that logic. We'll get into a little bit later. Again, we'll, we'll talk about why that U.S. debt isn't quite the same as your household debt. And when politicians try to frame it that way, they're not quite being honest. But at the same time, I do think there's a lot of merit in our government instead of operating at an annual deficit, trying to operate at a surplus or at the very least just trying to break even. If you're only collecting $4 trillion in taxes, Maybe you should only spend $4 trillion that year. But anyway, when enough politicians are thinking that way, when they're thinking about that they don't want to continue enabling this bad financial behavior, some form of a debt ceiling standoff occurs because the Treasury says, hey guys, we need to raise the debt ceiling in order to go further into debt. And politicians will say, no, we're not going to vote for it. You're spending too much. We're sick of it. So, without permission to go further into debt, the federal government would be forced to stop most of its daily operations, and that was the risk that we were facing here in 2023. It's not the first time we've seen such a standoff. It happened in 1995-1996, and that resulted in the federal government shutting down twice for 5 and 21 days, respectively. It happened in 2011, although the government didn't shut down. However, it was important to note that U.S. sovereign creditworthiness was downgraded and the stock market took a significant hit. Okay, what does sovereign creditworthiness mean? Well, it means that other governments and other bodies and pension funds and investors all over the world, they look at the U.S. government and they say, how good of a creditor is the U.S.? Or, or rather, how good is the U.S. at paying us back if we give them credit? If we lend to the U.S. government, are they going to pay us back on time? Now, historically, the answer has always been yes. The U.S. government is still looked at as one of the the best bodies to lend to anywhere on earth. But in 2011, that was temporarily, it came into question and the U.S. debt was, was downgraded and that affected investment markets. So in summary, the debt ceiling, even though it didn't cause the government to shut down, those debt ceiling issues did cause ripples throughout the financial world. There was another standoff in 2013, resulting in a 16-day shutdown. There was another standoff back in 2021. It did not result in a shutdown, a government shutdown. And then we had our debt ceiling standoff here in 2023. So the next common question, where do politicians stand? We already went into that a little bit. Fiscally conservative politicians, usually on the right wing Republican Party, they're typically opposed to raising the debt ceiling. Or if anyone were to be opposed to raising the debt ceiling, Usually, it would come from the fiscally conservative politicians. They, in general, want to see less government spending for many reasons. And they see government overspending as a root cause of US debt in the first place, which I think makes sense. US government spending is the cause of, of our debt, that or a lack of taxation. That said, no one really wants to raise taxes. Right? That's actually, taxation was one of the things on the negotiating table here in 2023 between Speaker McCarthy and President Joe Biden was the idea of, well, if we want to solve some of our debt issues, we could just raise taxes. Now, generally, right-wing politicians are against taxes. They want lower taxes and also a smaller government. So the idea of raising taxes kind of didn't, didn't, was quickly chopped. It hit the chopping block pretty quickly off negotiating table. But anyway, fiscally conservative politicians, they're the ones who see raising the debt ceiling as further enabling a behavior that they want to see changed. Next question, how can we allow this debt to continue to grow? And at the same time, we should answer how the U.S. debt is fundamentally different than household debt. So the U.S. debt is not like your debt. Government spending is not like your spending. And there are a few examples to show and explain this. The first one, government spending is hugely stimulative for the economy. As such, when the government reduces its spending, employment and wages fall both for the public sector, so that's nurses and teachers, police officers, but also for sectors that, you know, private sector companies that provide goods and services to government. An example there might be construction. So reductions in government spending, when the, especially when the economy is already underperforming, it can actually lead to higher levels of public debt and lower growth. It can make the situation worse, in other words. And that's not really something that would happen in your, in your household. If you reduce your personal spending to get yourself out of debt, it's not also going to reduce your income at your job. At least most of the time, for most jobs, right? Your salary is your salary, and your spending is your spending, and there's really not too much interaction between the two as far as your spending somehow influencing your salary. But with the government, that's what what we're saying here is that's not really true. When the government spends, it often stimulates the economy in a positive way and that creates tax dollars for the government to then collect later. That's fundamentally different from the way your household works. Another important point is that unlike a household, the government has the powerful backing of a central bank behind it. If the government and the central bank cooperate, the central bank can help lower interest rates or borrowing costs against the government's debt. And that's, that's pretty good. If, if you're going to go into $32 trillion of debt, it's nice to have a friend who can help control the interest rate of that debt. And speaking of interest rates, many governments, including the U.S. government, it has investors every day waiting to lend them money at relatively reasonable rates. Every time that a bond is issued at, well, right now at 4 or 5%, that's someone lending their money to the U.S. government. People are lined up. There's an auction every day of U.S. Treasury bonds. People waiting to let the U.S. government borrow their money. Why? Because the U.S. government has a reputation of paying back those loans on time with interest, and people like the way that sounds. Your household does not have that. You do not have people lined up at your door waiting to lend you money at reasonable rates. If they're lined up at your door to lend you money, they're going to lend it at unreasonable rates. So, big difference between the U.S. debt and and, uh, your personal debt. And ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, the U.S. government has the ability to print its own currency. Now, that would be really bad if we printed our way out of debt. That would lead to rampant global inflation. So we don't really want to do that, at least not in the short term. We don't want to do it all at once. But a lot of our treasury bonds are long-term, 20, 30-year bonds. And over the long run, that is essentially the plan of how we're going to get out of debt. Inflation is going to occur. We know it's going to occur. There's nothing we can do to stop it. And it's not occurring simply because we are printing money. But in the long run, dollars will be devalued slowly but surely, and paying back debt becomes easier and easier and easier. That's a little bit different than the way that your household debt works, at least most of it. Maybe the one way that there is a similarity, speaking of 30 year loans, is uh, a mortgage. A mortgage in some way is that maybe the closest thing where we can tie U.S. debt to household debt. Because with a mortgage, I just got a 30-year mortgage last month, so I can speak to this example. I've got a couple thoughts there. One is, I'm hoping that my career grows over the next 30 years. And that's similar to the way that the U.S. is hoping that its economy, and therefore its tax base, grows over the next 30 years. But also, there's likely to be inflation over the next 30 years, and that will affect my salary. In a good way, right? You will earn more dollars simply because inflation is occurring. But my debt payment on my mortgage is fixed. And similarly, the government's payment on its debt is fixed. It's a fixed rate debt. Now, the debt might be growing, but each individual bond has a fixed rate. So the government is banking on the fact that it'll have more taxes and that inflation will also drive its tax base up over the coming decades, making today's loans easier to repay. So the next question, we've already kind of touched on it, but it's a question that I've heard quite a bit over the last couple of weeks is, if the government is in $32 trillion of debt, then who is lending them all this money? Or who do we owe the $32 trillion back to? And the answer is tons of people, everybody. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but it's tons of people all over Earth. It's individuals, institutions, pension funds, other governments, anyone on Earth who owns a U.S. government bond or a bill, or a note, is lending money to the U.S. government, because as we've discussed on The Best Interest before, a bond is nothing more than a loan. When you buy a bond, you are loaning your money to someone, and in return, they are promising you interest payments, and then a full repayment at the end of the loan term. That's all a bond is. Every day, the U.S. government issues bonds in an auction. Those bonds are gobbled up by major banks and brokerage firms, who then sell them on the secondary market all over the world. Investing in U.S. debt is big, big business. Okay, what would happen if the debt ceiling wasn't raised? Well, if it wasn't raised, a few things could happen. Some of them are immediate effects, and then some of them are long-term ripple effects. Some of the immediate effects would be that the federal government would likely shut down until, hopefully, Congress is able to find a solution in the short run. Most federal jobs would be temporarily furloughed and unpaid federal contracts would be paused. And again, that kind of goes into that ripple effect of it's not just public sector, it's also private sector, because a lot of federal contracts are given to private sector contractors. Another kind of scary thing that might happen is Social Security payments and then Medicare or Medicaid payments might be paused. Now, that's a way to piss off a generation of baby boomers right there. And you've got to believe that Congress would get their ass in gear if they had millions of people calling them saying, where the hell is my social security payment? Now, another thing that would happen, a longer term thing that would probably happen if we weren't able to come to terms in this debt ceiling crisis, although maybe it's a short term, either way it would have long-term ripples, is that the U.S. might miss or delay its bond repayments and the U.S. credit worthiness might get downgraded again. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit. U.S. treasury bonds are considered the safest investment in the world because historically. The U.S. has always paid its debts. A debt ceiling crisis could potentially delay the speed at which the U.S. repays its debts. And that's a problem. Is the U.S. still the safest investment in the world at that point? Do investors need to be more concerned? Now, that could have far-reaching and mostly detrimental effects on bond markets and stock markets all over the world. Warren Buffett talked about how interest rates are financial gravity, affecting all financial instruments everywhere on Earth. Then another famous quote is, when the U.S. economy sneezes, the world catches a cold. In other words, the U.S. economy and U.S. debt, U.S. bonds, they're vital drivers and influencers on the rest of the planet. So if U.S. bonds are questioned, surely that would affect the global financial markets and the global economy in most likely a negative way. We will conclude this episode with the update that you might already know, which is that Congress suspended the debt ceiling altogether until 2025. In years past or or previous negotiations, they raised the debt ceiling to a specific dollar amount. But in this case, they said, eh, we're gonna kick the can down the road. We'll talk about it again in a couple years. And so that's exactly what they're going to do.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves. And we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.